Well, hello, it's so good to be with you. Today we're going to begin the series on the prophets. And this is going to be kind of a, an exciting uh, series. It's going to focus really on the 12 minor prophets. It's part of the Soaring Over Scripture series. And in this series, what I'm doing is we're going to kind of look at an entire book of the Bible in one session, about 20 minutes or a little more, uh, 20 to 25. And the hope is that you'll get kind of a grand overview and uh, see the chronological uh, development of the 12 minor prophets, which are called uh, the Book of the Twelve in Greek. In fact, they're looked at as a singular book. And it's kind of exciting because we don't always look at it that way. We look at them as individual minor prophets, which they were, but they do speak in a collection to some degree as a unit. And if you put all 12 minor prophets together in one book, you get a book about the size of Ezekiel. And so you have really in the Hebrew collection a, uh, a set of four kind of major prophetic books, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then 12. Daniel actually fits in the writings section of the Hebrew canon, but he is a book of, of similar length to uh, Ezekiel. And so uh, I hope that you'll enjoy this series. The, it, the progression will be chronological, and so it may uh, confuse you from time to time, but hopefully you'll really enjoy uh, looking at things in this way. So we begin with Amos, our 8th century minor prophet. He is one of the three of this time frame, and he may be our very first writing prophet in this period. We do have prophets of power that have gone before Elijah and Elisha, and these prophets have stories written about them, but we don't have a book of Elijah. We don't have a book of uh, Elisha, and we uh, really kind of rely on Samuel and Kings for their story. But here we have prophets who are writing on their own, and it appears that we have reached a time in Israel's history where writing is more commonplace, and so we get more writing starting in the 8th century. So let's look at Amos. Amos is a fantastic book. Uh, we have uh, a short book, but kind of longer compared to some of the minor prophets, and he really sets off the whole story in quite an amazing way. Now, in your Bible, you're going to notice that Amos is not the first of the prophets in the book of the Twelve. In fact, he follows Joel who follows Hosea. So Hosea is our starting point. But we actually believe that Amos may have been the first one to write. But they're all in the same period, although Joel has some question marks. We'll get to Joel later. But as far as Amos goes, his background is such that he is the first prophet to have messages collected in his name, perhaps written by himself. And these messages date back to 760 uh, BC. And this is kind of significant. This is pretty old. We are dealing at a time when the Northern Kingdom still exists. And this northern kingdom and southern kingdom are not always in agreement, Israel and Judah. But there is an increasing pressure that will come from the north. And Amos sees a day when judgment will come on the northern tribes if they don't get their acts together, if they don't repent. So what we know is he's a shepherd. He's a farmer from Judah. So you can imagine that Amos may not be received well. He doesn't have great education. He's not royalty. He's not part of the court. He's not a priest. He is a shepherd who cares for a flock in Judah, and as such, he just really has no business coming and telling people what to do as far as his audience is concerned. But Amos has a strong sense of calling, and God called him to leave his flock, go north, and prophesy these things that we'll discuss tonight. Not a prophet by choice, but rather a prophet by call. He's a peripheral prophet, and sometimes we'll have great emphasis on calling in our prophets. You know, Isaiah has a strong calling uh, Jeremiah has a strong calling. Amos has a strong calling. And what we find for the prophets is more so than pedigree 
is calling in terms of are you or are you not a prophet of Jehovah. He is commanded to go by God himself. He lives in Judah but bases his ministry up north in Israel. It is a short-term prophetic ministry. And this is interesting because we normally think of a prophet for life. Amos, more or less, has a mission to go, deliver a message, and then once that message is delivered, he goes home. He, he says, I've finished the job that God has called me to do. Now, he may have had a longer tenure, but it appears that the northern uh, power of Israel drove him out and said, go back home or else. And he did return to Judah, we believe. So there's a picture of Amos. And, you know, we have some of these great images that exist throughout Christian history. Uh, so let's look at a little more carefully what Amos actually teaches. It begins with a message of doom and destruction. You know, not popular stuff. Even today, you go around giving a message of doom and destruction, people don't want to hear that. We're stressed out, we're busy, the last thing we want to hear is how we're doing it wrong and how God's going to judge us and what terrible things await us. And that is something that is an inconvenient truth, more or less, but Amos is coming to deliver a message of doom. It's a very creative introduction. If we turn to the book of Amos and begin, what you'll see is the story begins with judgment against the nations. And it starts off with, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. And the Lord says, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And he goes through the punishments uh, and the sins of Damascus. And you can imagine this new street pe preacher arrives, and he begins with condemning the nearest neighbor of Israel, which is uh, Syria, and he condemns that nation for its sins and declares God's judgment. And you can imagine there's a roaring applause. Yay, we like this guy. And he moves on and he says in verse 6, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will re not revoke its judgment. I'll send fire against it. And uh, he's gaining popularity. He is condemning yet another nation that is despised by Israel. We move down to verse 9. For three transgressions against Tyre, or Tyree, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it. I will not revoke its punishment, and I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre. And again, this, this guy's really hitting it. You know, they, they love this guy. He, he's really delivering it to their enemies. And what could be better than these great words of Amos? We sure like Amos. For three transgressions of Edom, and now for three transgressions on the sons of Ammon. And we keep going. Then, as Amos is really gaining their popularity, he really crushes the ultimate foe in Israel's eyes, their best neighbor, their brother Judah, for three transgressions against Moab, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four. I will not revoke its punishment. And so you can imagine that there's a certain sense in Israel that Judah thinks they're better, that they have the temple, they think that they have the true place of worship, and they think that they're the better uh, kingdom, that they're the God's favored kingdom. And there is this sense of resentment. And when Amos condemns Judah, you can just imagine a great roaring applause because they have been told for years that they can't make their sacrifices in Israel, that they should go down to Jerusalem and uh, sacrifice in the temple, and they don't. And so Amos is saying Judah has their comeuppance coming. And so we must uh, repent, Judah. But as he's gained all this popularity, uh, you know, two chapters of how God will judge the nations, he moves into... A, a, a new judgment. Let me just turn the page here. And when we get to the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, we hear 
the great judgment against Israel. And this is what they don't want to hear. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. They sell the righteous for money, the needy for a pair of sandals. They plant, they, they pant after very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. They turn aside the way of the humble. A man and his father resort to the same girl. And it goes through a list of sins that puts all these other nations to blush by comparison. And Israel is laid bare by Amos the prophet. And so he went from being this favored, we like this guy prophet, man, he's going to bring judgment uh, of God declared against all these nations. But the, the final judgment, uh, the best was for last, and it's coming against none other, none other than Israel. And so Amos moves from being very popular to very quickly not being so popular. He criticizes Israel in a number of ways. One, their court system is corrupt. They have set up laws to use and abuse the poor and the needy. And they are using these laws to enrich uh, the wealthy class at the expense of the poor. And there is not a sense of obligation to those in need. And for this, they are condemned. He condemns their worship. We get into chapter 5. And what does he say? He says, I hate, I reject your festivals. This is God. I reject your festivals, says God, nor, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. You come together for church, and I don't like it. Because, says God... Even though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Their worship is worthless because they have acted unjustly throughout their society, and these uh, sins have stolen any value in their worship. How can God accept their worship and their offerings when they are so committed to systemic sin and usury of the poor, abuse, and uh, greed? It's a very telling book. Again, Israel was doing very well in this time frame. They were with a wealthier uh, kingdom. Judah was more impoverished. They don't have as good of land as Israel. And Israel was doing well because essentially Assyria was not strong. It was a period of a power vacuum. And so Israel was able to grow and be prosperous for a season. And in that season, rather than uh, give their best to God, they were uh, seeking their own best, their own personal interest, in, and not seeking to follow God wholeheartedly. Luxurious lifestyle at the expense of the poor. You know, we hear sometimes today about, you know, the importance of socialism and communism and capitalism being about greed. And a lot of the things, if you study political theory, you'll see that there are critiques of capitalism, that it's uh, dangerous to pursue capitalism wholeheartedly without an eye towards the poor. The, the hope of capitalism is that you raise the poor class up as you raise all classes up. But over time, it's the role of the government to enforce monopoly, uh, breaking up of different groups that are becoming too powerful and abusing uh, the poor and making it so that people cannot succeed as well. And this is a tendency that happens in every society that's prosperous. Uh, socialism, you know, we can go through some of the other issues. I think C.S. Lewis said, if we really looked at a biblical form of government, we might find that it's a little more uh, socialist than we would like, but it's also a little more conservative on moral teachings than we would like. And this is, of course, written, uh, I believe, in the 50s. But 
the reality is the Bible does have an obligation on man to their fellow man and taking care of them. What I think the issue with government is, is the government should not have to compel people to do that, but that that should be an overflow of their hearts for serving God. And we find that that is failing in Israel at this time. All right, charges are brought against the people that they are impulsive. Uh, verse 6-3, do you put off the day of calamity and would you bring near the seat of violence? They're just living for today, not realizing the judgment is to come. They're indolent. They're lazy. They sit on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. They're not diligent. They are indulgent. They drink wine from sacrificial bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. They just live the high life. And this, of course, uh, you got a question. You know, where is your treasure? Your heart will be also. We have an insensitive people a group that is not paying attention. Uh, hear the word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. We have disrespectful women to their husbands. We have disrespectful masters to their slaves. We have disrespectful uh, employers to the poor. And this is not right. And Amos is just laying bare the sins of the land. We go on we have apathy. The people don't listen to Amos. They don't take his messages and say, well, we really ought to do better. They ignore his warnings. They don't believe anything is really threatening them. They look north. They look south. They're not intimidated by Judah or Edom. They're not intimidated by Syria or Assyria. They feel like they are secure and safe. And surely God is blessing them because they're doing so well. Be really careful that you don't look into your own life and see success and count that solely as the measure of God's blessing. It's dangerous. And when hard times come, you can't immediately flip it and assume that God has uh, changed his mind and is viewing you in a less positive way. So they think they're successful. They think that they have made it and that God cannot be upset at them. And this is an illusion, Amos says. People are insensitive to their own condition, and we find this often to be the case. We, we tend to believe that we're doing much better than we are. We tend to believe that God's very pleased with us, and we're not very introspective. And this often requires the prophet. God calls the prophet up to speak to our problems. And what we have today in the Christian church is we have the Bible. We have the Bible that tells us when we are in error. And so the Bible is a continuing prophetic voice in our life to expose our own failures and our own insensitivity to the needs of others. We have a, a request to hope. All right, There is only one hope for Israel. If they're going to survive this coming onslaught, the judgment that God promises to bring, they need to return to God. Failure to return to Yahweh will bring about the day of the Lord. And you're going to see this as a theme throughout the prophetic books. The day of the Lord is coming, and the day of the Lord is something you are not looking forward to. It used to be this idea that God was going to come, judge the nations, and when he judged the nations, Israel would be put on top. But what we find out in Amos and the other prophets as it begins to develop is that the day of the Lord is going to be a terrible day for Israel as well as the nations, for Judah as well as the nations, because there is none righteous, no, not one. And this sin of Israel calls God's judgment down. And so they need to return to God. Perhaps now, if they return, God will relent the punishment. But alas, we know the story. They're not going to relent. In fact, God will have to bring great judgment against the northern tribes. God will judge his own people. As we progress, we're going to see the day 
when Assyria gains power, comes down and just wipes Israel off the map. They're gone. The ten lost tribes, we call them because we never reclaimed those tribes. Judah was exiled and returns, but Israel never returns, and they're dispersed until God knows when. It's a sad day. God eventually will restore his own. And this is, again, interesting because Amos is saying you need to repent to withstall God's judgment, to, to hold it back. And yet then he has this idea at the very end that in that day I will restore, I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and I will wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the, remem- the remnant of Eden, sorry, the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Who does this? Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. I will restore the captivity of my own people, Israel, and they will rebuild and ruin cities and live in them. And I will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens. Sorry, they will plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out of their land, which I have given to them, says the Lord God. Interesting because Amos is declaring a return from an exile that has never taken place yet. And it's actually pretty far off in the distance. It's 100 years away. And, well, I guess it's 40 years away. (laughs) But it's not clear that it's coming. And Amos is saying that not only uh, is this going to eventually happen, but eventually after it all happens, I will bring you back, says God. So God will judge his own people. All right, Amos pleads for justice and righteousness, Amos 5.24. He is, uh, let justice roll down, it says, a great quote that we remember. Uh, We have a judgment that is coming, and if the people will not be just, then God will bring his justice. We don't want to be recipients of his judgment. Amos eventually is expelled from the land of Israel. It appears that the, the court and the priest drove him out, and he had to return to Judah. Under threats, I think there are some uh, thoughts that maybe Amos didn't meet a timely uh, or a, a good end, but um, maybe was persecuted. We don't really know. The, the evidence from the book is pretty uh, sparse, but we have this confrontation that occurs in 9 verse, sorry, in 7 verse 12. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread. And there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and of the royal residence. And so get out of town, Amos. Uh, We don't want to hear your words. And this is kind of the the end of the story. Uh, It's not very happy for Israel. They think that they have driven out this troublemaker. But what they've done is they've denied the very prophetic utterances designed to turn their hearts. And as we see Hosea and Micah will see eventually the, the fall of these northern tribes because they were not faithful to God's call to repent. Now, I just wanted to look at a couple of cool visions as we're ending here. Uh, the visions that we see laying out the judgment are worth knowing. We have uh, four images, these vi- visions. He's given prophetic visions. And this is important because as we look at Ezekiel and some of the other prophets that are giving really intense intense visions of God's judgment. It is something just to uh, bear in mind that uh, sometimes God reveals the terrible judgment in order to really get our attention. And the first one is a vision of the locusts 
a forming locust swarm came up and ate all the crops. And Amos said, Lord, please, God, pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be. So a terrible locust plague was going to come, but the prophet intercedes and God stays his hand. Then another vision was given. The Lord God showed me, behold, uh, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire and it consumed the great deep and it began to consume the farmland. And I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. So again, the prophet intercedes and says, Lord, please don't send this fire that consumes the water and uh, Israel will be no more. And God waits. Then he showed me, Behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand, you know, holding the line to see if the wall is straight or it's not, you know, the, the trueness of the wall. He said, Amos, what do you see? I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste, and then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. I'm going to judge Israel. It is going to happen. And while your prayers may hold back my judgment for a period, eventually I'm going to measure them and judge them. And finally, we go down to the basket of fruit. The Lord God showed me, behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. He said, what do you see, Amos? I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people. I like the NIV on this. I think it says, the, the Lord said, what do you see, Amos? A basket of summer fruit. He said, the time is ripe for my people. It's a great way of catching that uh, Hebrew idiom. The time has come. They're, they're running out of time, okay? I've relented, I've relented. I'm judging, and the time has come. You know, it, it's worth mentioning, you know, we have to look at our own nation from time to time and say, okay, Lord, what is happening? Are we going to be able to be spared? And uh, God is going to bring the plumb line against a nation and judge it based on those things. And we can pray for His patience, but eventually we see through the prophetic words that nations are judged. Nations are judged. So if you are moved by this, if you are concerned, then do what Amos did and take some time to pray and ask God to stay his judgment, that the Lord would relent and that we would have time to repent so that we could avoid his terrible judgment. Amos kicks off a powerful section of scripture, and I hope that you've enjoyed this. We'll continue through in the following weeks. But uh, it's, it's just such a powerful message that is very cutting today. We need to be a people of repentance, a people that care about the poor, the downtrodden, a people who have true worship, a worship that is not obligatory but of a good conscience, and that in so doing that we would find favor in the eyes of our God and King Jesus Christ. All right, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. Have a great and wonderful day or night, depending on when you're watching. Take care.